sinners, choosers, lovers, dreamers, hypocrites, and cynical bastards all over the world. Welcome to Choose Your Own Religion. My name is Joe. Thank you for tuning in. If you've never heard the show before, this is the show where me and a guest talk about our spiritual backgrounds and our spiritual and religious foregrounds. And if we don't have a religion now, we make a new one up right on the spot. Normally, we have members from the LA comedy community on the show, but this week, it's a little different. He's not in the comedy community, and he is no longer in Los Angeles, but he was. And that's where I met today's guest, is the Reverend Ed Bacon, the former rector of All Saints Church in Pasadena, where he just recently retired from. But we didn't meet there. We met in the locker room of an LA fitness, and I had no idea who this guy was. I don't know what led us to striking up a conversation. I think that day I was just trying to be happier, trying to do a very un-LA thing and talk with strangers, no matter how much clothing they had. Uh, His book is called Eight Habits of Love, and guys, look, I have not been into reading a Christian book in years, but it's not even really a Christian book per se. It's a book about love, and if you are just trying to be a more loving person in your life or figuring out, I've got a good job, I have friends, I have enough batteries, what am I missing? This is such a great book. I read it last year, and I'm so glad I did. Uh, Just to lay out the eight habits, uh, because we reference them in this conversation, we talk about it a lot. Uh, The eight habits are generosity, stillness, truth, candor, play, forgiveness, compassion, community. Again, those are generosity, stillness, truth, candor, play, forgiveness, compassion, and community. And yes, there's a lot of overlap in those intentionally, but there's a lot of differences between those and a lot of nuances that he talks about in the book and that have been really helpful for me. And uh, the hardest part for me, I think, in this journey, because look, the backstory of me that a lot of y'all have heard before, but a lot of y'all haven't heard before, is that my dad is a Presbyterian minister and I am neither. But I was a Presbyterian a long time ago, studied religion in college, fell away from the church, as they say. It's always a falling away. It's never just like, yeah, I stopped going. No, I had to fall away from grace. And then I went on my own journey that involved psychedelics, uh, and reading about Eastern religions, incorporating a lot of that stuff, and sort of coming back around to uh, this idea that there is some value for sure in religion, but I don't know exactly what it is. And speaking of the eight habits of love, one of the main ones that I struggle with is finding a community. And I think this podcast has been so great for me for so many reasons, and one of them is helping me have a little bit of a taste of a spiritual community again that that really resonates with me. I mean, because I fucking made the podcast, but hopefully it resonates with some of you guys too. Uh, But what I'm struggling with is that maybe there's uh, a need for a physical in-person community too, uh, in addition to this, And uh, but I still resist uh, being a member of any church. Even a church as cool as All Saints. Uh, There's a lot of members of All Saints. Yes, members. Not just attendees, but members who are Buddhists and atheists and I don't know, whatever the fuck else. And so I know a lot of you guys are cynical out there. and A lot of guys are skeptical. uh, Don't really care for religion. Uh, A lot of you do, but a lot of you don't. And the ones of you that don't, I think you'll find so much good shit that Ed has to say. And he's somebody I would not hesitate to have anybody who believes really anything listen to. Uh, And look, you don't even have to take it from me. He's done a lot of stuff on Oprah's radio network. He was just recently named as part of her Super Soul 100, which is a collection of 100 awakened leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. So yeah, 
Take it from the queen, not me. So I highly recommend you buy Eight Habits of Love. Seek out Ed on social media. I'll also put links in the show notes to the Super Soul 100 thing. Uh, He was also recently interviewed by Spiritual Biz, which is an online spiritual magazine. I'll have the link to that. And if you like this show, chooseyourownreligion.com for all the old episodes. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, Google Play. Like the Facebook page. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, The best way to help me if you feel like it is to leave a rating on review on whatever platform you like. But if you don't, I get it. Despite whatever reflection my ramblings might have on my mental health, I haven't left a Yelp review in years, so I totally get it. I'm just so happy you're listening. So please, my beautiful theme song lady, welcome Reverend Ed Bacon. Allow the soothing music and uplifting affirmations to center your heart and mind in an awareness of God's love. Wake up, my dear sinners. Wake up from your deep rest. Won't you say your prayers? Know that you are blessed. I love you, oh, but Jesus loves you the best. And I hope that you choose your own religion. Oh, Ed, what's going on? Everything's cool. How about you? Good. Great. Nice to see you, brother. Good to see you, too. Is that in- live from Alabama? Live from Alabama. You there in your home studio? That's right. I sure am. I had to, It was a lot easier this time because I just had to make my bed behind me instead of the cleaning <laughs> up everything else. So I appreciate it. Very good. Good deal. So uh, I was reviewing... <laughs> obviously, in preparation for this... Uh, for this, I was reviewing your, your eight habits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, I was curious what habit just missed the cut. You know, it started with eight. Really? It it always was eight. It was so uncanny. That book, I mean, you've heard this so many times ad nauseum Mm -hmm. that write themselves. I mean, the outline of this book actually wrote itself. Wow. There always were eight. Um, when I went in to talk with several publishing companies, they said, we love these eight. Um, the only question was, so one, actually the, the company I went with wanted to know the difference between, uh, candor and truth. Yeah. I explained that. And, uh, yeah, it was really amazing. So I'm waiting for the next book to have that kind of ripeness, uh-huh. you know, before I, um, put it around. Gotcha. Do you have anything currently in the works with that, or is it just nebulous well, ideas? I, I have three ideas. Yeah, they're pretty pretty definite. Um, one's just a really slim volume about uh, the national issues that we dealt with at All Saints when I was there for 21 years. Mm-hmm. We, we dealt with a lot of issues, but uh, just a few were at the kind of a national profile. Mm-hmm. And uh, one is to talk about a phenomenon that I think happens with everybody, and that is that we are uh, in the, always in the process of inheriting a, a road map for our lives mm. um, or a map for our lives, and that to the degree that we stay alive uh-huh. and thoughtful that we actually sail off that map mm-hmm. and so um, that book is going to be called sailing off the map and um, then I'm going to put together a volume of quotations that I think are at the level of the sacred mm. um, that are all unequivocally about love 
uh, a love-based life. So um, it's uh, a new Bi- what I call a new Bible. That's that sounds. Uh, those are all great ideas. I know we've t- we've talked a little bit about some of them before. Yeah. Um, right. And I, I will say, I mean, I told you when uh, when we met a year ago. I, I think, and I didn't know who I didn't know who the hell you were. I didn't know anything about you. Uh, we just met at an LA Fitness locker room. Uh, just right. struck up a conversation, um, and then found out you had this book about love. And uh, I, I'll tell you, that was a it was a truly transformative book for me. I'm I'm so thankful that you wrote it, and it kind of like, you know, it's just one of those things where sometimes you just read things, and it it just it resonates with you in a, in the sense that it feels like it, it reminds you of things that you felt like you knew deep down, but you sort of forgot about. And so, thank right. you. That's a, that a great book. I, um, Thanks. The uh, Mike, I have a question about truth. Yeah. This is and now I don't know if this is uh, this is this is diving a little deep, maybe a little bit early. But what do you think? What do you think is, is like the purpose of truth, or why do we why do we as humans love truth so much? Like it feels like it's something intrinsic in our bones that we, yeah. we need truth. And it seems like so many arguments, so many disagreements we have with, with whether it's an ideology, somebody p- across the political aisle or across the religious aisle, it's always like we have a, a fundamental disagreement about what's true. Yeah. Uh, can you speak to it all to that? Or Yeah, I, um, I have some really deep feelings about that. And that is that I think that when we are aligned with truth, when we're lined up with truth, that's when we're happiest. And that's when our suffering is minimized. Mm. Um, a huge set of categories for me are the true self versus the tr- false self. Mm. And so when I think about truth, I think about our true selves, our individual true selves and our collective true selves and our true selves as a nation or as a culture or as a world. And um, to the degree that we can turn our backs on the falseness that's within ourselves and the falseness that is within the culture, within ideology, within religion, and we can line up with truth, then we, I think, are most energized. Mm. So it is of primary importance to us to really struggle with, argue about, fight about what truth is. Where do you think these... uh... Where, where do you think the, the false self comes from? What do you think is informing that? Yeah. Well, part of it, I mean, it's, it's a complicated answer, I think, and, and I won't exhaust it here, but I think that part of it comes from our inheriting a myth or our inheriting a self or our inheriting an ideology that we uh, don't question and that is not in alignment with evolution mm. and how truth Life, love, all are evolving. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a part of our false self. Then um, I think (laughs) our false self oftentimes comes from being lazy. Uh, (laughs) we, we, We really admire somebody else and we say, ah, if I could just be like that person. When that really is an act of falseness right there. I mean, Mm. I think we ought to be inspired by the people. We ought to... uh, find out how they became themselves and their true self. But we have to learn, um, and we learn this usually by, you know, making mistakes and screwing up and um, failing. 
that um, everybody else has taken. You know, we've got to be ourselves. Right. And it takes some real soul searching, uh, stock taking, mm-hmm. and the ability to change. And I guess that's where uh, stillness maybe would come into play. Precisely. Actually, stillness and, and community uh, come to my mind. Mm. Uh, you absolutely can't do this without stillness. You've got to, in the process of stillness, um, discover what's uh, ringing true for your body mm. and your mind and your thoughts and your feelings. And then, in addition to that, you have to kind of try that out and see how it impacts the people around you. Yeah, because it, it seems like, I mean, I, one of, um, through this, like, I don't know, I think a couple of us are on an interfaith type path and seeing what all of the, the major religions sort of had to say, at least at their origin, what they had to say about uh, this type of thing. And it seems like a lot of it is is getting, using whether it's stillness or meditation, which is, you know, a form of getting the stillness right. or whatever it is, it, it's a way to sort of short circuit that sort of default automatic yes. un- sleepiness you know being exactly. being a t- in a dream um Precisely. state yeah yeah that somnolence you're talking about is uh is the antithesis of being aware of being awake yeah and you know the whole every, every great religious sage from buddha to jesus to muhammad all talked about the importance of being awake mm. and being aware and it is just so, I mean, I, we do have to take breaks, you know, we can't kind of walk around as a live wire all the time. Yeah. Uh, but that oscillation of giving yourself some rest and then coming back into awareness, really, really important as opposed to staying outside your awareness all the time. Mm. Now let's, uh, I just want to back up for people who, who don't know you aren't, aren't familiar with your story. So right now you are happily retired, or maybe happily yes. retired, <laughs> as uh, yes. fr- still in the fresh honeymoon phase of retirement. And uh, True. and but before that you were decades an Episcopalian minister, but you grew up Baptist. Is that correct? Correct. What, when did um, and I, I've heard you maybe touch on this a little bit before, but when was the moment, or when was like the the point of your life where you started transitioning away and and why did you try to transition away from that southern baptist uh to and why did you pick episcopalian of all of all the possibilities well it it didn't fit i mean that's that's the bottom line uh the baptist church just was not um fitting for me um i knew inside myself that i was a minister and i could not imagine myself as a Baptist minister, because the Baptist theology for me didn't, it it was not true to my experience. Mm. It didn't encompass all of life. It was dividing life up into kind of dualistic categories of black and white, um, sacred and profane, and my life was having a very different experience than that. So, all along, and well, all along I was saying, I can't be a minister because I can't minister this stuff. Hmm. So um, I went to law school. Uh, I went around saying, you know, what should I do? And everybody said, 
um, well, you know, you look, you talk, you act like a, you dress like a lawyer, go to law school. So I went to law school, you know, and I studied, 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 but then I discovered Thomas Merton, and we can come back to him and talk about him if you want. But Thomas Merton was a 20th century spiritual great, and his core ideas had to do with the false self and the true self. That's where I learned all of that. Mm. And in the middle of a law school exam, I took a break and went outside and heard a voice this inaudible voice that I think is in every human being saying are you an attorney and I said no and the audit the voice said you know if you're not an attorney do you need a law degree and I said no and if you don't need a law degree do you need to finish this law exam no and I kept walking and that was the big no that I needed to say in my life yeah and you know so no's are so sacred because they can leave you lead you to a sacred or truthful Yes. Mm. And that's what was going on. And it was like everything began to fall into place and everything began to fit. And all of a sudden I had energy and man, I've had a wonderful, happy life and still am having a wonderful, happy life. Wow. And so, and Thomas Merton, now was he Episcopalian or was he? He was not. He was Roman Catholic. Okay. Uh, actually he had, he had uh, been born an Anglican, but, um, that didn't work for him, huh. and this is really, really cool because there's no like one truth for everybody. What? You have to, <laughs> yeah, I know. You have to find your truth that is harmonious with everybody else's truth. Mm. And for him, Roman Catholicism was it. He kind of found himself there, and then even more crazily, um, he decided that. He was a monastic, and he went into a monastery in Kentucky and uh, really kind of flourished there as hmm. a person who lived in contemplative solitude. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes um, I hear you on the nose leading to a, a sacred <laughs> a sacred yes. I, I think it's funny. It seems like there's like almost two modes of thinking. Uh, I guess this is a form of black and white thinking of some people are yay-sayers and some people are naysayers as i've yeah. heard before some people you know people who say no kind of they the stereotype is they they're people who live in fear and they live and uh you know they're overly conservative or yeah. they're they don't take enough adventures and maybe there's a touch of truth to that but then people <laughs> sometimes people who say yes and give maybe potentially i've been i've been in both modes of of uh both mindsets of that at different points in my life. And I think sometimes you can overly yay say to where it's being impulsive and you're falling back asleep in that, that one sense. Um, so I've definitely had some important no's uh, before for me. Um, so when you, so you, you, <laughs> so you walk away from the law exam, just walk away. Yeah. Wait, did yeah. you, did you get any backlash? Like did somebody reach out to you like a professor isn't anything? Well, the, um, the professor, of the course of the final exam, I left, uh -huh. pursued me, pursued, pursued, pursued me, uh -huh. and found me that afternoon. And I went back in, and um, we had a conversation. And he was so thoroughly understanding, huh. and he gave me no resistance. I mean, his response was, you know, uh, the practice of law and the practice of ministry, I believe, he said, are so closely aligned that I think that you could interview everybody in this law school and 60% of the people could tell you the day they decided to be a lawyer instead of a minister. Wow. And I said, what is that about? And he said, well, I think it's actually about justice. 
I think that uh, lawyers and ministers really are interested in justice. And he said, it just makes perfect sense to me that you are a minister, not an attorney. So blessings on you. Mm. Um, he said, you, you scared us because we couldn't find you and you'd left the law, law exam, the final exam, but blessings. And it was just amazing to me. It was, it was such a grace for that guy to reach out to me that way. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's something I never thought about, but you're definitely, when at the times I visited All Saints, uh, there's no question that social justice is uh, on the forefront of the the agenda there. Um, and that's, so it, it is, you do feel like there is a justice and that that's why then? Yeah, because I think that it's back to the truth. I mean, justice and truth are cousins, uh, if not siblings. And um, when you are interested in truth, you're interested in what's true for everybody, what's going to be helpful for everyone. Mm. And you want to make sure that everyone is included. I mean, this is my just definition of justice. You want to make sure that everybody's included and there's enough for everyone. Well, those are the two issues, the primary issues of, uh, for justice, inclusion and economic fairness. Mm. So um, ministers are very passionate, I think, healthy ministers and healthy religion are very, very interested in everybody's image of God being acknowledged and everybody having the opportunity to do what they're called to do mm. and to make the contribution that they are called to make. And so that's why, because I've heard some people, and now the, the church I grew up in, my, my dad was a pastor, and he stayed fairly apolitical, and I think a lot of... A lot of uh, people in faith communities choose to sort of sort of not take a too much of a public stance to sort of maintain community and maintain unity within that um right. so i guess that i mean i guess i kind of already maybe heard this but so why do you why do you feel so strongly it's important for people to be active politically and to vote right well I mean, Scripture says uh, faith without works is dead, and I really, really believe that. Mm. And I don't see how you can be involved in work without being involved in policy critique. Mm. So when I'm talking about the political and when I'm in the pulpit or in announcements in church really advocating a political critique or a political policy, I think that that is absolutely required. I think it's imperative. It's a moral imperative to take a stand against discrimination, bigotry, violence, whatever it is. Unfortunately, too many of those ministers, I think, cower um, because they don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. And they don't want to cause people to think. And if you're... If you're a minister and you're not causing people to think, I mean, are you doing your work? So that's a, a huge issue. There's another issue related to that, too, and that is whether or not you're going to be partisan. Now, I happen, happen to be one of those ministers who draws the line between being politically active about policy and, yes, doing that, but not endorsing or trashing a candidate. You know, as much as I'm tempted to enter the fray uh -huh. in this presidential uh -huh. election, I'm discovering the closer I get tempted from time to time to to weigh in on that and get into the boxing ring to say, you know, my job is going to be to critique whoever is in the, the office mm -hmm. later on. 
and to the degree that I maintain my uh, objectivity or my uh, neutrality now, I have more um, authority to weigh in later. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, one question too. I remember you saying this in um, sermon a couple months ago about there being layers of truth, and and maybe yeah. that that political layer is what we would, you'd call perhaps the is it the societal layer is yeah. it tr- of truth or love or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, we could argue they're synonymous, but <laughs> but uh, now, do you think the 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 layers before that were what communal and personal, right? Right. Well, I was talking about there being a four levels in every mm-hmm. interaction. There's the personal, interpersonal, and then the institutional, and then the mm-hmm. cultural. Gotcha, yeah. So those are the ones I was talking about there. So um, particularly, say, for two white guys talking <laughs> one with one another. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that everything that we say and maybe agree to really easily just may not be the case for women or the case for people of color or people who have a different orientation, sexual orientation or whatever. And we have to be open to that. And that's why community is so important. So we can say, you know, this is the this is what I believe and this is my passion on this. And I realize I'm a person of great privilege. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me how that impacts you? And let's see if we can get to an even deeper truth. Right. I mean, yeah, it's just all about opening up perspective and just realizing I don't have all the story. I just have, I know my truth and I know my story, but that doesn't, it's not complete. It's fundamentally incomplete. I guess my question is, so what do you, to somebody who maybe now, because I've been in modes of life where I didn't even have that personal level of love. And I I think that's still a daily, you know, you have to, I I don't know, daily renew that commitment to loving myself and loving other people. So do you, do you think that somebody who maybe they're, they're not in a great place? They're not, they're not feeling very happy. They're not feeling like they have great interpersonal relationships with people. They're, they're feeling misanthropic for whatever reason. Maybe they have rightfully been, um, you know, mistreated. I mean, do you say that they, do you think that they should wait to jump into the, these like trying to make an institutional and societal impact? Do you think there's a process there? I do think there's a process. I mean, there's a process for me on a daily basis because uh, I don't wake up lovingly every morning. <laughs> and I, don't, I don't wake up every morning uh, free of anxiety and fear. Mm. And the reason it's important to me to have my time of stillness or contemplation or meditation or prayer, I really don't care what you call it, uh, there are nuances in that, but let's just talk about doing your practice of stillness. The reason it's so important for me to do that in the morning before everybody else gets up and before I go into the world is because it does reduce the chance that I'm going to be reactive and react instead of respond out of my fear or my anxiety mm. um, instead of out of my love and my love-based life. So, yeah, um, it, it is important for people to think about when they're going to get in the arena, the public arena, the political arena, um, in terms of their own development, um, in terms of age and maturity, but also every day. Uh, mm. You can be so regressed when you wake up in the morning, you know? Yeah. 
What do you think? So one question I, I definitely wanted to ask you before. What do you think is fear? Like, and is it evil? And why do you think we're so prone to fear? I, I think it's almost by default state. It seems like I revert to fear, and it does take a spiritual practice or whatever, whether you want to even throw in the word spiritual on top of it. It, it takes some kind of yeah. some kind of daily practice to sort of combat right. that. What What do you think fear is? Well, it's such a great, <clears throat> great question, number one. Let me just acknowledge that. <laughs> and again, we're not going to exhaust that. But I do think that fear has to do with um, imagining that we are alone, mm. thinking that we are alone. The myth of the separate self is totally evil. It is fear-producing. And when we act as though and feel as though we are alone in the world, then that denies all of our interconnectivity. That denies, from me, from a theological perspective, that God is pulling for us, is connected to us, is sending us godly divine energy, which I call love mm. or grace. And so fear is false. It is a lie. And it is there all the time, kind of beckoning us. It is, it's an energy and it's a force field. I mean, you can, I mean, you know, there's all this scientific stuff going on right now, discovery about how we have these force fields that you can detect that are outside the human body, outside the human being and that you can actually feel the different force fields that people have around them. Um, Archbishop Tutu calls, uh, talks about people who are Ubuntu people or not Ubuntu people. Anyway, yeah, uh, so we have these kind of force fields around us and, and, and we need to find ways to um, shift the force fields, shift the energy field around us. Yeah. And um, do you think do you think fear is something that and this is this gets into a lot of speculation I, I realize but do you think fear is something that was like given to us to overcome or challenge or do you think it's just a way just a state of of being? Well, are you are you asking Joe? A, a, I mean, it feels like you're asking a real theological question about you know in the beginning how did <laughs> right right. Be? Solve the problem of evil for me, Ed. <laughs> okay. So, the problem of evil and the problem of fear, from me, from my perspective, okay, here, I'm, I'm being, trying to be humble here. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's about God's creating us in freedom. Mm. And in order for us to be free to choose love, we have to be free to choose fear. In order for us to be free to choose the goodness that's in us and in everyone, we have to be free to choose evil. So if we weren't free, um, then the whole fear or evil or egotistical kind of path would not be an option for us. It's about having options. Totally. And I, you know, something I think about, and I've been reading, I don't know how familiar you are with Alan Watts. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've been reading some more Alan Watts recently. I, I go back yeah. to him a lot. And uh, one thing that he kind of talks about is just the nature of attention and uh, and labels as being this sort of this necessary these necessary functions, like attention being a natural function of our brain that we can only focus on one little aspect at a time. But that's, that's our, our consciousness. Um, but it, it, it's so inherently limiting because it's like trying to make out all the contours of a cave with just a single flashlight at a time. And I guess, yeah. So to me, it feels like, it feels like fear is, it, it, it's a necessary, this otherness is a necessary, I don't know. It's just something that's, the way our brains are designed, it, it's going to it's going to be naturally inclined to being fearful because there's so much darkness at any given moment. Right. Yeah, and and we do have to note at this point that fear is not intrinsically evil. Fear mm. is only evil to the degree that it leads us to believe that we're alone and that we can do anything we want with impunity to another human being. So. To the degree that fear is functioning in our brain to help us make um, reactions of fight or flight or freeze, mm. that's a real gift to have, to have that fear in us. Yeah. The problem is when we allow fear to lead us or when we think that our imagined fears are real fears. Mm. So let's give a bow to fear as a, also a gift from God, understanding that when we make it our God, as opposed to making love our God, then that's when we've tipped over into evil. Totally. And that, man, that reminds me of just the first, especially the early days of me doing stand up of like how fear, it really can be like a compass of what you feel like, what, what you actually need to do. Sometimes you feel the most afraid when it's exactly. when you're on the precipice of something great and if you can use it in that kind of alchemical process exactly it, you're so right it can be a total gift um do you totally. think i mean eleanor eleanor roosevelt said do something that scares you every day and i think she's pointing to that exhilaration uh that that exhilarated moment of being on the precipice or being on the high dive or something like that because that's usually <clears throat> pardon me that's usually the threshold of you're doing something that's really true and really unique, mm-hmm. unique contribution that you can make to the world. Well, it's like often the the most fearful part, the the thing that's actually feeling the fear is your, my ego. Often the case, it's and sure. so it often it's uh, the fear is something that's a signal of something that I I can be overcoming or transcending, I should say. Exactly, and it's also the part of us that wants to be superior to everybody else mm. instead of the part of us that wants to connect with everybody else. And when we really connect with somebody, the, the most genuine way of connecting with somebody is not through our being superior to them, but being able to relate to one another mm. about the fact that we all have these common experiences. So do you think then that the ego is the enemy? Is that something that's, yeah, yeah. do you think it's the enemy? I, I really do. Um, you know, it, it is important to have ego strength. So let's, again, talk about uh, yeah. ego not being all bad. It's very, very important to, I mean, you have to have ego strength to get up on a stage or to get into a pulpit or get in front of people or to do anything or to open up a body in, in, in a surgery, in a surgery mm-hmm. operation room, operating room. And 
when you're driven by it, instead of using it as your fuel, that's a different matter. Mm. My spiritual director, my, my retreat director, whom I go and have eight-day re silent retreats with every year, tells me that, Ed, your, your problem is that you get ahead of grace instead of you follow grace. And that is really, really true. When we let our ego get us ahead of where we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be doing, and who is it healthy for us to connect with, that's where ego becomes evil. Right on. Something I, an analogy I've sort of been thinking and mulling over is that, because I, I, I totally, what I love about um, your ministry and what, I, what feels true to me is, is a total loving embrace of everything, even fear, even the ego, and yes. realizing that we don't, when we try to totally damn those things or kill yeah. those things, I think it causes more more suffering for me, and because then it's just a constant yep. like shame, like oh, there's my ego again. There, yep. <laughs> there yep. it is. Yep, yep, yep. Um, absolutely. Yeah, but so, so one thing I, I guess I've been thinking about it's like using the ego almost as like it's like one of those Alaskan uh, dog sleds, mm -hmm. where it's like the ego sort of is like your 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 dozen <laughs> dogs or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're not, you don't let the dogs go where they want to go. You're directing them like, no, this is where we need, this is the path we're going to go. But you're not saying, hey, like, you're not asking them to not be dogs. You're not, in fact, you're just using their energy in a positive way. Great image. Wonderful metaphor. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for affirming that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now my ego got a little, a little boost from that. So thank you. But that's, that's your healthy ego. Um. <laughs> uh, to to take a slight dovetail, um, how do you how do you define spirituality, and how what do you think, or how would you differentiate that from religion? Yeah, well, in its healthiest forms, in their healthiest forms, they are the same. Um, now, I don't want to do away with the distinctions. So, both spirituality and religion are about connection. I mean. Religion literally comes from the word meaning religio, which means to reconnect. And spirituality actually is the experiences of reconnecting us with one another and with God and with our true selves. I mean, when Jesus said, you know, the great, great, great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, he got uh, Jesus there talking about our connecting with ourselves, our connecting with others, and our connecting with God. That is the essence of spirituality. But it's really got to be emphasized that this is about the experience. Anytime we do a head trip and try to do this thing through thinking and cognition, as opposed to cognition, thinking, and feeling, and the body, and experience, and the unknown, then we have departed from spirituality. Mm. Now, religion, bless its heart, <laughs> <laughs> is oftentimes the outward um, expression. It's almost the, like the skin of spirituality. And that's where you have to have, to some degree, some relationship with institutions. The problem again there is that just as spirituality can go to the head, religion can go to the institution. Mm. And you miss out on the heart experience of 
both, which is about connectivity. Mm. So <clears throat> it's really important to maintain a sharp, critical stance about both spirituality, so you're not doing a head trip on yourself, mm-hmm. and on religion, that you're not doing an institutional trip, and you're missing the experiential connectivity that's at the heart of both. So what do you say to somebody who maybe they're, they're vaguely interested in, in joining some kind of religion or just going to a church to find that community? I, I feel like I know a lot of people uh, my age that are kind of in that like they they don't they didn't like what they grew up necessarily with the religion but they they recognize the they love the idea of a community of of good people frankly um, right. and what but what but I think we also feel that that we lose maybe some of that individuality or that individual experience so what do you say to somebody who who's thinking of that how would they how would they go about being a part of that community but maintaining that yeah. Well, the, the word is caution. <laughs> so cautious because it's so easy <clears throat> to get into a religious experience where you are spiritually abused mm. or you're fed a whole bunch of bullshit. Mm. Um, and I mean, my wife and I right now are church shopping. Uh, we went to church this morning. Uh, you and I are having this conversation on Sunday. We went to church this morning because our granddaughter was acolyting. And when she's not doing that, we're looking at other churches. And you, it, it's, about this, it's about this path of truth that you and I began this conversation with. I think it's really important for us to find a faith community, a worshiping community, where our truth and the truth about other people and the truth about the world and the truth about the divine are being explored and whenever you've got some <laughs> minister, let's say Jack Leg, uh, you've got somebody <laughs> up there who is saying that he knows it all or she knows it all, and there's absolutely no humility and no journey that they're on and no ability to change and evolve, then that's not, I think, going to serve you well. I mean, it certainly wouldn't serve me well. Mm. Um, but it really is important for us to go on this journey, not just alone. It's really important for us to gather with people so that we can understand that this thing is bigger than we are. Mm. And there's a, and whatever ideology or religion or theology or whatever your frame of reference that you develop has to have room for everybody. In it. Mm. it can't be just about me or it absolutely misses the whole notion of everything belongs. So you've got to have a growingly vast religion or theology or spirituality that allows for everybody. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that to the habits of, uh, of love, you mentioned obviously community, but right. candor within that community yes. as being a vital aspect, the ability to disagree honestly. Absolutely. And to appreciate that, to applaud that. Mm, it's challenging. That's so, it's so hard. It's challenging. And, you know, the, the, the reality is that the way you were raised can give you a leg up on that mm. or can give you something that you're going to struggle with all the time. I mean, one of the bad things that my parents would say would, don't, would be, don't dispute my word. Oh, yeah. Well, I think the most powerful 
compliment you can be paid is to have your word disputed for, hmm. for somebody to say, well, what about this? Because I see it differently than that. And that's such a compliment. I mean, the one thing that I really appreciate George Bush the first saying <laughs> is candor is a compliment. Mm. Yeah, that's true. It's almost like a recognition or it's it's a it's a recognizing that I believe you can handle me not yes. being on the same page with you. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. And within that, I'm curious because I, I feel like I may not have the whole story here, but I think I felt like I heard this one time when I was visiting All Saints that uh, that there were not just they're not it's not just Episcopalians there that there are in fact members who are members of who are Buddhists or maybe even atheists. Is that true? Yes, that is very true. I love that about All Saints Church, and that's what I'm looking for in a church here in Birmingham. Yeah. Um, so the uh, I think this has been going on for a long time. But my big epiphany on it was once a, a woman came up to me and said, after church, and she said, um, I do want to account for the fact that I leave church after your sermon <laughs> every Sunday. And uh, I hadn't noticed it because it's a big church and she sat near the back. She's now deceased. And she said, um, I just thought I'd let you know why I come to All Saints. And I said, please, please tell me. She says, I'm Jewish. Uh, but my psychiatrist told me that I needed to come to All Saints. <laughs> said every time every time a minister uh says something about jesus just bracket that and go for the stuff that's universally true Mm. well in my mind every really healthy religion is always putting forward the universal Mm. more than the particular i mean we can get into the fact that you only get to the universal through the uniquely particular, but right now I'm talking about the real universal. So, And then we had an experience with the IRS, and we had a bunch of atheists writing us and making contributions saying, you know, if I believed in God, yours would be the church I would go to. Mm. And then other people would come up to me and say, actually, I am an atheist. So we have Muslims, Hindus, atheists, Jews, and a whole bunch of unknowns coming to All Saints. So do you think then that um, that sort of like ideas of, and I asked you a, a kind of theological, borderline cosmological question <laughs> earlier with uh, with fear and, and whatnot, whether it's God introducing it or whatever, but I mean, do you think that these sort of constructs of like, or beliefs of how the universe was made, how, whether the relation, whether there's one God or no God, like one, you know, kind of guy in the sky or not uh, type God, do you think that's sort of, that it's sort of beside the point, or do you think there's an importance there? Like to to be everybody on the same page of that stuff. I don't think it's important for everybody to be on the same page. In fact, I think that that's truth when people, when not everybody is on the same page. Mm. There's a distinction that helps me called unity versus uniformity. And I think that we can be united without being the same, Mm. without us all having the same form. So that's what I'm always pushing for. For instance, I think that probably compassion is the unifying value of all world religions. Mm. And there's so much room for different interpretation about everything else. But when someone is acting in a way that's not compassionate, I begin to wonder if they haven't distorted their religion and Mm. distorted religion period. So we don't even have to agree that 
compassion is the one you know, <laughs> force there. But um, I do think it's really important to leave an awful lot of room, but to be able to respect from others' experiences without saying, if you don't see it the way I see it, I have the right to kill you. Mm. What do you think then? So, but on the, now, so on the other hand, it's not necessarily a bad thing to believe certain things about, you know, whether the, the, the big, uh, the big, maybe often elephant in the room with Christianity is believing in the, the literal truth of the resurrection and right. uh, the, the origin story of Jesus being born of virgin, whatnot, and miracles in general. Um, right. So what, but what do you think then if, what do you think is the role of sort of the symbolism of these types of moments or the, of rituals that sort of kind of reinforce, for instance, with communion. Um, what do you think is the role of those types of rituals? Yeah. Well, um, I like to drill down to what I think is the, the core of any particular given theological doctrine. I mean, I think we're going to look back at doctrinal and dogmatic religion one day and say, you know, that was humanity at an early evolutionary point. Mm. So, um, and I think that a lot of us are leaving that kind of dogmatic doctrinal stuff already and are moving into a whole thing about consciousness and evolved consciousness, which has to do with energy. Nevertheless, let's say that we're at a place right now where a whole lot of people in the human family are in the dogmatic doctrinal stage. Hmm. And a lot of us are saying, you know, that's a little suffocating for me. But if we're going to go at this acknowledgement of the importance of difference, then for those of us who are saying, you know, let's move beyond the doctrine. It's really important for us to say, however, if you have to hold on to the resurrection, let's look at what is the deepest understanding and meaning and value of the resurrection. And I think the answer to that question is new life. Mm. So I can easily, passionately embrace the whole notion of new life without embracing the bodily re resuscitation or resurrection of Jesus's body. Mm. And my life is such that if you are there, I don't have to talk you out of it because I'm getting so much juice from the whole new life thing that I can say, that's resurrection. Right on. Same right thing, on. you know, same thing about the virgin birth, the same thing about absolutely, you name a doctrine. And I think you and I could l drill down deep enough to find the universal underneath that doctrine, mm -hmm. which would feed us. And then we could just continue to be fed by that while we love somebody who's holding on to the literal interpretation of it. Mm. Right on. Yeah. And sometimes it's where, I mean, it's going back to kind of difference. It's sort of that it leads at least for more interesting, uh, discussions when we don't all agree on the even even if yeah, we agree exactly. on like a similar doctrine or we want to drill exactly. down it's like the slight nuances and slight differences there or even big nuances big differences right. there can be really fascinating 
Yeah. Uh, um, so do you think then that do you think that religion has no use for some people, or do you think everybody can benefit from it? I do think that everybody can benefit from it, Joe. Um, that's a great question. I'm I'm kind of musing over it and looking out into space as I'm thinking <laughs> about this. Um, if we if we if we use the conversation we've just had about dogma and doctrine, and let's say for just a minute that that is what religion is, although I've talked earlier that religion is much deeper. But let's just say that religion has to do with a collection of doctrines and dogmas that are perpetuated by an institution. Um, I don't think that that's helpful for everybody. I really don't. So I'm, I'm just I'm thinking out. I'm talking. I'm yeah, yeah. Um, no, um, that form of religion is not helpful for everybody, and the world as a whole does not need that. Mm. The world as a whole needs that deeper, more universal, more all-encompassing, nurturing understanding of religion of as that which connects mm. we were talking about earlier and yes that is needed by everybody yeah i think and i i think unfortunately there's so much of the former of that is what what i hear so many friends of mine i've heard them over the years and years and years now especially in my pretty liberal communities of uh you know that that they do we have this caricature of all religion as being this sort of dogmatic unuseful right. thing um Yep. So I, it's unfortunately, that's the religion that sells mm. um, newspapers, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And when the news media is communicating about historic events, they too frequently are promoting promoting that kind of superficial understanding of religion. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of it too, I think, with uh, with my generation, we we don't we don't care for the judgment and right. uh, the shame that sort of involves, yeah. and things like I mean, sex. Why do you? <laughs> something I've thought about, like why do you think people don't like religious people talking about sex? Yeah, why do I think? It seems like. Don't like it seems just people talking about sex. It seems like there's almost like a an inherent like reaction. Like I don't know. It seems like when people not even because often I guess it is in that sort of like shaming mindset. But even then, it seems like it seems like sex is sort of uh, I don't know. Is it something that's like a lower state of being or a lower sort of id driven thing? Or I mean, why? No, it, I mean, it's it's so life giving and it's so intrinsically good and wonderful. And it gives you such energy and creativity mm. that those people who are on the lower level of religion that we've been talking about, who want to control everything, know that they can't control that. And mm. so they try to make it very ugly and um, make it for kind of one person and have <clears throat> all of these fences that they want to put around it. And um, I mean, like, Let's let's admit that one of the problems of religion, these lower levels of religion that we're talking about, the dogmatic, doctrinal, religious stuff, is that that's so much about power. And, you know, there were 
you know, wars fought over creeds and phrases in, in creeds and all that kind of stuff. The same kind of power-driven control orientation energy is brought to the arena of sex. And um, there is no, and, and then, oh my God, people wanting to talk about what's ordered sex and what's disordered <laughs> sex. Yeah. Oh, I mean, obviously, all of us would agree, you know, that sex that abuses and sex that hurts and sex that's not consensual, that's taboo. But in terms of, you know, consensual sex that's absolutely enjoyable and life-giving, you know, that should be a part of religion and spirituality, not controlled by it. Mm. Yeah, it just seems like it's even even on the, like, I don't know, maybe it's it still is like we have too much baggage from kind of the uh, or the, these other these more judgmental types sort of muddying yeah. the waters. It seems like, I don't right. know, it gets, you get on edge anytime, even, <laughs> even somebody who's like maybe at a more connecting and loving religion starts talking about it. Or I don't know. It just seems taboo for some reason. Um, see what, what do you think going back is, uh, what do you think is, uh, the hardest of the habits of love? I have a couple of my own guesses, but yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is it depends on where you are in your life. I mean, for instance, stillness is a very difficult part. It's a very difficult habit for young families, for instance. Mm. Um, there are other reasons why stillness could be difficult depending on where you are in your life. And your brain, brain chemistry, perhaps. Precise. Yes. Very good example. Forgiveness is a very, very difficult one if people understand that they are having to be the one who forgives. Mm. But as I explain in the forgiveness chapter of Eight Habits of Love, this is about being open to forgive. And there's an energy of forgiveness that comes into you when you are open to it. That's another one. Compassion is very difficult to mm. extend to people who are heinous criminals. And um, so that can be very, very difficult. I think that maybe those, but, but you've pointed up both brain, brain chemistry as an issue for all of these. But I also want to invoke again your family of origin. Um, I mean, you can be born into a family that thinks it's sinful to be playful, <laughs> you know, and the seriousness and earnestness Mm. is synonymous with being religion, religious and holy. And there's no understanding of the importance of playfulness there. So I think it depends on a lot of things. Yeah, you want to talk about privilege. The privilege of being playful and just accepting that that's a great thing and not everybody necessarily has that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, well, I think we're, we're almost about out of time. My last, my last completely superficial question um, yes. Is uh, what what is Oprah like in person? Oprah Winfrey is an amazingly wonderful, I mean, full of wonder person. She is very, 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 very bright. Mm. Uh, she's one of the brightest people I've ever been around. She's really, really clear. Um, I'll <laughs> well, I. 
she's clear in herself about what she wants and what's good and what's not good and what's uh, a good way to travel. She's not without mistakes. Um, and she's very, very human. I'll never forget one day showing up to work and um, she was doing a show with Gail. Um, they ha both happened to be in town. It was in August. That's usually when she's off. Um, she was uh, in town for a um, the funeral of one of their security guys who had died suddenly. And um, so I rarely saw her when I was working there. But um, this is a rare time. And the producer in the sound room said, oh, I know she's going to want to see you. Um, just go on in as soon as we take a break. So they took a break, went in. She was exhausted. I mean, she was so humanly and humanely exhausted. Mm. And she saw me, and she reached her arms up for this big old hug <laughs> and expressed all this gratitude to me for my coming in and doing that work, which was really a, a help to her because she was doing this weekly radio show. Uh, this is when her whole soul orientation was just beginning. And this is back in 2008, 9, 10. And um, so I, I was coming in and doing two shows a, a month, I think. And my colleague Elizabeth Lesser was doing two shows a month. And that only left Oprah to do uh, fewer. And she was just really, really grateful. And then I was with, the, with her at a birthday party, you know, several months ago. And we just sat, and it was a buffet birthday party, and we just sat on a, a bench and ate our buffet food and just talked like people. So she's brilliant. She's exceptional. She's a genius. She's very, very clear, um, really, really smart, and just a real human being. Wow. I don't know what I expected, but that was a really, <laughs> that was a really beautiful story. Thank you for sharing I really that. trust her. I really trust her as a human being. Well, uh, thank you so much for doing this. This was a wonderful talk. Uh, I feel no like I feel like we scratched the surface of a lot of things. Um, I would love to have you on again at any point. I know you're you're busy in retirement land, but um, I, thank you. I um I was I I I really loved your questions, and it reminded me why you and I just hit it off when we first started talking, because you really are thinking at a very important level. I think of life. So um, I'm really, really glad that we're friends and I get to uh, kind of watch you as your life unfolds. I think it's going to be very interesting and full of surprises. Oh, well, thank you. Pastor Ed Bacon, thank you so much. Love you. <clears throat> Love you too. Take care, brother. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's the show. Once again, thanks so much to Ed for coming out. Please, buy the eight habits of love. Find Ed on social media. Look in the show notes for more of that stuff. For this show, like the page on Facebook, subscribe on Google, Stitcher, iTunes, and subscribe to the idea that maybe love isn't a zero-sum game. Love you guys. Bye. What's a creative podcast network?